You are tuned in to the Green College Lecture Series, broadcast on CITR 101.9 FM and online at citr.ca. This podcast is sponsored by CITR. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. Welcome to the first Law and Society event of the academic year. My name is Renee Simoani and I'm an associate professor in sociology and the co-convener of the Law and Society speaker series with Margot Young, who couldn't make it today. Um, the series is very generously funded by uh, Green College and by the Faculty of Law at Allard Hall. Um, and this year we have quite an exciting list of speakers. Okay. So today, I'm very, very excited to present uh, someone that I think is absolutely an absolutely amazing legal historian uh, and a wonderful person, uh, Michelle McKinley. Michelle is Associate Professor of Law at the University of Oregon Law School and is the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development. Uh, earlier, she just said, oh, I just have this little administrative job not telling me that she's the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development. <laughs> Michelle has published extensively on public international law, globalization, and legal history, particularly the law of slavery. Her articles appear in the Law and History Review, Slavery and Abolition, Berkeley Journal of Gender, Law, and Justice, Identities, Global Studies and Culture and Power, Yale Journal of Law and Humanities, and Unbound, Harvard Law Journal of the Legal Left, among others. She's been awarded fellowships for her research from the American Council of Learned Societies, the National Science Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Philosophical Society, and the New Barry Library. She was awarded the Surin C. Prize last year for her article, Fractional Freedoms, Legal Activism, and Ecclesiastical Courts in Colonial Lima, 1593 to 1700. And the award came from uh, Law and History Review, which is, of course, one of the most significant uh, legal history journals in the English-speaking world. Uh, Michelle's scholarly work is located at two disciplinary intersections, law and anthropology and law and history. Both history and anthropology, she points out, have a long-standing interest and passion for understanding the ways in which law is shaped by wider social and cultural processes, and it's at this nexus that she begins her work. The title for her talk today is The Unbearable Lightness of Being Black, Legal and Cultural Constructions of Race and Nation in Colonial Latin America. So please join me in welcoming Michelle. Thank you very much, Renissa. Thanks to everyone for coming. Um, my, you know, these kinds of uh, acknowledgments are always pro forma, but this is a real pleasure for me to be here, um, especially because I wouldn't incur the wrath of Renissa for not coming, for one. But um, I enjoy Vancouver very much, and I'm delighted to be here when it's not raining. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do today, I like to uh, actually visually take people, even though this is a wonderful setting and a beautiful place, I like to take people back uh, in time. Um, to the place that is the location of my scholarly work and to give you some sense of 
the physical environment and the legal environment that I'll be talking to you about today. So when most people think about Peru, obviously they think about Machu Picchu, um, which despite its uh, magnificence is, was really just a summer cottage of the Inca nobility, and it was lost for many years. Um, so that's why it's called the lost city of, Ma of Machu Picchu. Um, most people are familiar with the Andean, um, the Andean highlands. Um, more contemporarily, uh, in the 80s, before familiar with Peru's uh, internal war um, and massive armed conflict that took place under Sendero Luminoso and uh, the Revolucionario um, movement of Tupacamaru. Um, but I'm going to talk today about Lima, which from the time that the Pizarro brothers headed south uh, has been the, the real seat the, of uh, the Spanish Empire in the Americas. Um, as you can see, it's a port city, it's right on the ocean, and it really is the center of, uh, was the center of colonial governance, Republican governance, and today as well. I like to say that when the Pizarro brothers left Spain and got to Peru, they really felt like they won the lottery. Um, they were not expecting what they found once they left uh, Mexico and they found sources of unprecedented uh, mineral wealth. And Lima very, very quickly became, once again, the center of religious um, governance, political governance, and intellectual uh, development. So this is where I roughly am going to be um, panoramically today. Um, the legal administration of the colonies was um, organized around a series of audiencias, and you can see that the Audiencia de Lima is very big. It encompasses um, all the way to the Audiencia of Quito, which was also a subintendent of the Audiencia of Lima. Really, the two audiencias in the, uh, in the Americas that made uh, difference were the ones of New Spain and the one of Lima. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. I love the picture to the right, would that be your left, of Tupac Amaru. Okay, so if you look at Tupac Amaru in this uh, representation, he is the last Inca uh, ruler and was the instigator of, uh, of, of the last Indian uh, insurrection. But if you look at him, he's really a creolized, hybridized figure, right? If you look at the foulard, you look at the stockings, you look at the, uh, the shoes, it's definitely coming from a Spanish uh, background. But his medallion, his kushma, everything about him seeks uh, a claim to the Andean uh, nobility to which he belongs. The Spaniards in the late 1700s respond incommensurably in, in grotesque ways to the rebellion. And most historians at this point agree that this is what hastens what you see on the, my left, your right, the rise of the great men who write history, right? So you see uh, the liberator standing and uh, San Martin sitting, right? So this is really the two uh, 
ends of the spectrum for uh, the beginning of Republican governance. Um, but I actually don't talk about that. I just thought I'd give you a little taste of it. <laughs> Besides, I actually like the picture a lot. Um, I don't talk about that at all. I talk about, this is the very early um, rendition of uh, Juan Poma's perspective of indigenous Indian, uh, indigenous black relationships. Now, when the Spaniards first come to the New World, they are accompanied by slaves from the Iberian Peninsula. And if you look at this picture, you can see that from the indigenous perspective, there really is no difference between the Spaniards and the Iberian slaves that are brought, right? So this is uh, actually both in the official record and in the sort of the official indigenous history. And what you see here, Waman Poma is saying, is a black slave approaching an Indian prostitute with silver stolen from his master. So this is the sort of the debauchery that you will find uh, written into the record. And, and, and in the historical record, almost um, an oppositional relationship between uh, blacks and uh, the indigenous people. Um, so this is the debauchery one, and this is the punishment one. So you see the black slaves doing, Iberian black slaves doing the dirty work of punishing uh, the Indian, a black slave, a Spanish corregidor, the Indios flogging an Indian, right? Now, this is the official story. This is uh, also, I think, inscribed very deeply into the way that we think about black indigenous relationships. And that is not something that I have found in the historical record. What I find in the historical record is more like this. And this is obviously a stylized picture. It's also the picture of my book. So, this a shameless plug there. But I like this picture uh, very much because you see that this is really what I find to be uh, convivencia. The picture is called Las Tres Razas, and you'll see it's, it's, it's ambiguous, but you know, the indigenous girl in the middle could be straight out of Diego Rivera, right? That indigenous uh, school of uh, painting. The boy on the right is either the master of the house, or he's a stagecoach, or something. Uh, it's not clear. And the slave, the mulata, is very much uh, the older one, a very seductive pose. Um, so this is what I would call something that's very different to these, right? Um, so this is what I sort of want to talk about uh, today. The, Categories of caste um, are dizzying, and I will spend some time talking about them, but this is what you see in the legal record. And it's very interesting how these categories are arrived at. So this is a sistema de castas that really is a very, it, it, it's, a, it, it's an algebraic way of measuring blood mixing. Now, if you, t if you look at the middle, we've deliberately left uh, the women stable, right? So the mixing is going on with the men. And it's usually men who are of a higher status that are mixing with women who are of a higher caste. Um, this is a wonderful one. 
Now, if you look at this, I don't know how to do all those funky things with uh, PowerPoint, but if you look at the third uh, one, Cholo in India, the Cholo is derived from a mestizo in India, and you have this wonderful category called Tente en el aire, which how many people speak Spanish, but it actually means you're suspended. Nobody knows what you are. Now, this is, to, you know, today what we have, right? We all, when we have our babies, we, and anybody who's ever given raise, uh, birth to a child of mixed parentage knows that you, you know, the baby can look very different two years, three years, or two weeks from now. So this is the priest at the time that the baby is brought to him, literally saying, I don't know what you are. And that's the category that I'm going to uh, assign to you. Now, when Tente en el aire mixes with an India, an Indian woman, what you have is a salta atrás, which means that the child ends up darker than the mother, or darker than the grandmother. Now, I'm going to spend a little, little bit of time on this category that I found in the archives called chinos. Now, chinos, everybody knows, are Chinese, but they really aren't. But they really are. They completely just, now I'm only showing you the Peruvian uh, charts. The Mexican charts are, are off the charts, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, they have 18 categories. I really distilled it here. But um, I'm going to come back to the Casta charts, but I'm just going to show you uh, a little bit of the census. If you look at how this is broken down, you will see that the black and Casta population is actually a very large uh, part of the historical period that I'm studying. And sometimes, um, and you know how hard it is to enumerate people. Um, and then by 1791, you can see that the slave population and the Spanish population are pretty much uh, even. So it's a very unfortunate uh, distinction to talk about a slave society or a society with slaves. I think it's easier to talk about, um, as Christophe has talked about, societies with slavery. I think that's a, a, a better uh, rendition of it. All right, so I'm gonna leave you here with some pretty pictures. And um, actually, I'm gonna show you, this is, this is where I do most of my research. I spend a tremendous amount of time here looking at these documents, which, it's only commensurate with my eye strain. Um, and end up with some faces, and you can figure out on the charts where they would belong. Um, all right, so my talk today is going to offer you an insight into the colonial legacies of Latin American racial formations. In particular, I'll focus on the legal construction and the development of mixed racial categories in early colonial Lima to interrogate the theme of racial democracy and its associated projects of mestizaje, indigenismo, and contemporary multiculturalism in Latin America. The case studies today that I include will examine the constitutive nature of race itself in Iberian thought as this was reflected in these legal uh, recognition of what we would call mestizo categories. Iberian flexibility in incorporating miscegenation is a source of controversy regarding Latin American racial democracy. And I will always put scare quotes around racial democracy. I'm just not going to keep on doing this. Every time I say it, suffice to say that I'm doing this. 
and those who discount the significance of race as opposed to class on socio-political condition in Latin America. Iberian flexibility is often contrasted with the more rigid Anglo-American parochialism that subjected peoples of mixed racial descent to bipolar racial thought <coughs> and discrimination. As Cuban nationalist Jose Martí proclaimed in Nuestra America, a Cuban is more than white, black, or mulatto. There can be no racial animosity because there are no races. Following Martí's logic, how could there be legally segregated theaters or water coolers if one could claim mixed ancestry across the spectrum? So the argument is deceptively simple. The law cannot officially enforce racial segregation while supporting a national creed of racial fusion. Now, as a legal historian, my interest is mapping how legal regimes augment or contradict the ways in which race is lived and experienced, or has been lived and experienced. In a contemporary vein, I want to think about how racial democracies deal with multicultural political movements that demand legal remedies to ameliorate racial disparities. But most importantly, my curiosity lies in thinking about how hybridity, how this gets worked out when race becomes politicized. Um, and is implicitly using a model of agitational politics. So how has the politicization of race assessed Latin America's assessment of itself as a racial democracy? And the role of jurists in creating uh, racial categories is particularly salient in North American critical race theory scholarship. However, the role of courts in constructing race is not an element that is studied in Latin American law. This has been attributed to the distinction between civil and common law systems, the buffer provided by the church between legal states and state slaveholders, and also to distinct racial logics and experiences. This is that all of these are valid observations. They pose challenges for hem hemispheric conversations about race in the Americas. But they also present opportunities for a rich discussion about the potentialities of comparative work, especially in light of new thinking about transnationalism, migration, borders, and diaspora. All of these have opened up ways and entry points of investigation into belonging, nationhood, and identity in a global context. And word about terminology. Mestizaje, uh, or its Caribbean counterpart, mulataje, is used to denote racial hybridity. In the 19th century, it's a 19th century term, when independent Latin American republics appropriated a discourse of inclusive citizenship to fortify their nation-building projects. 18th century elite republicanism, the great men that I showed you before who write history, had barely um, encompassed the metropolitan liberals, conservatives, and intellectuals making this a very shaky foundation on which to build a national community. So despite Latin America's early years of independence, the republics floundered about for decades as states without nations, reversing the you know, chronology of Benedict Anderson's uh, evocative scheme on nationalism. So the appeal to a nation, a patria, or an imagined community comes a, a, a century later. 
Hence the emergence of mestizaje, this convivial hybrid amalgamation of black, white, and Indian in the liberal imaginaire. But we should ask, why hybridity? When racial purity, white supremacy, and scientific racism were also available racial paradigms in the 19th century. These, of course, are politically uh, instrumental choices, but they also respond to erstwhile notions of identity and nation by their proponents. In thinking about race, Latin American statesmen like Marti drew upon ideologies of nation and identity rooted in these kinds of taxonomies. Now, Mestizaje's roots in Iberian diversity and Catholic humanism are the subjects of centuries of intellectual scrutiny, and I know it's very late in the afternoon and I'm not going to bore you with all of that today. But I want to say that it is con uh, continually posed in dialogue with and in opposition to the hegemony of North American racial thought, which has traditionally demonstrated, shall we say, a particular discomfort with racial, with racial mixing. Um, so before I kind of go into that, I, I do want to say that I'm not, you know, glorifying or idealizing mestizaje. I'm not separating mestizaje from the historical reality in, of, of genocide, domination, and sexual violence that brings about multiracial beings, right? So what Jared Sexton has provocatively termed the event of miscegenation, which is the undeniable pre uh, presence of mixed race people and illicit sex and all of those anxieties that um, multiraciality uh, implies. But I, I also think that we need to confront the tensions that surround comparative conversations about race. Um, no matter how hard you try, and I try pretty hard, any endeavor that purports to discuss Latin American racial paradigms is formulated with the US uh, experience of race and slavery in mind. Um, this is, you know, undoubtedly due to the intellectual legacy of comparative research in the 1960s that drew very sharp comparisons between the U.S. and Latin American laws of slavery. Comparative slavery scholars of the 60s launched a decades-long debate about where uh, along the mild, abusive continuum Latin American slavery belonged, with the U.S. at one end and Brazil on the other. Um, given the political volatility of the time for race relations in the United States and the legal remedies subsequently developed to ameliorate the, dis uh, the effects of discrimination, the comparative effort grew even more contentious. Now, today most scholars would agree that the dichotomy between North and South is increasingly pointless. North American scholars grapple with colorblind constitutionalism and its impact in our, you know, groovy post-racial Obama, post-Obama, whatever regime. Um, and ironically, as race becomes more politicized in Latin America, strict adherence to the racial democracy uh, thesis has given way to calls for legal remedies like affirmative action and reparations policies associated with the racial tyranny of the North. Conversely, the ultimate enforcer of the one-drop rule, the U.S. Census Bureau, 
recently offered over 20 categories for Hispanic and Asian Pacific American preferences on the 2010 census. Now, the 2020 census might just look like this. So we all agree on the constructedness of race. And we recognize that racial identities are situational, they're relational, they're fluid, but we don't agree on racial mixing. Um, and the problem with the debate, I sense, is that it continues to rely on a US model of quote unquote doing race as the universal model, rendering other ways as just variations on a theme. Thus, for instance, and people will say this all the time, Afro-Latinos are hindered by the lack of an agitational black power movement demanding legal remedies, or the existence of an unresponsive judiciary, or simply and more damningly, the victim of false consciousness in claiming that Latin America has no racial problem at all. Now, I don't actually get involved in that. I just say that you know the excursions of US racial theories beyond the border have explicitly endorsed a set of prescriptive responses and solutions as a model for Latin American racial justice in contexts that have historically been entwined with mestizaje and what Cuban scholar calls transculturation. So, so I don't do any of that, actually. I take the historian's way out, and I say that I'm looking at medieval formations of early modern racism. But I really want to work out the ideas about race and how they were configured in a milieu that was uh, slaveholding and in which extensive race mixing occurred. So I use a few, to this end, I use a few distinct historical sources, annulment petitions, and um, today I'm going to talk about a census. And my goal in using these kinds of records is to really trace the intersection of race, gender, and status, to show how these uh, sources highlight the complex nature of mapping race in a society with slavery. Um, and then I fast forward to the end um, to critically evaluate uh, multicultural affirmations of racial politics in, um, in today's uh, Latin American nation. So my sources, when they work together, they demonstrate how racially mixed identities were constructed by courts operating within an Iberian ideal of pureza de sangre, or uh, sensibilities of difference. Iberian sensibilities frame difference within an encompassing yet tense accommodation and quiescent suspicion of religious otherness. The discourse is one of accommodation, the Lascasian ideal of universal humanism, with the goal, of course, of conversion, potential inclusivity. Accommodation was always at the grace of the sovereign, whether papal or regal, and on his absolute terms. While scientific racial discourses emerged roughly in the 19th century, they're profoundly intertwined with previous thoughts about blood and heredity though I run the risk of inviting Professor Mwani's wrath about lost temporality, my focus here is on the idea that social and religious traits, which later become naturalized as race, were transmissible and inheritable through commingled blood. 
really, there's not that much difference between this and animal husbandry, if you think about it. Um, and I argue that we can't uh, fully appreciate the political allure of Mulatahi without understanding its historical roots. Um, I want to just say uh, what mestizaje is, because I think I've been talking about it. I'm not sure that I've actually defined it yet. Um, it's an idea that's like this. It's rooted in syncretic hierarchies of blood mixing. Jose Vasconcelos, the Mexican educator, legislator, and lawyer, celebrated the alchemy of Latin American race fusion among indigenous, African, and Spanish peoples that produced what he called the cosmic race, la raza cosmica. You know, I've always wanted to belong to a cosmic race myself. Um, this cosmic race was a vibrant product of the best biological and cultural traits whose cross-fertilization would overcome social and ethnic divisions and transform Mexico into a modern and progressive nation. Vasconcelos argued vociferously against the scientific racism that had pronounced negative views on the effete mongrelization and the degeneracy of race mixing. Moreover, Vasconcelos reveled in the debunking of race and the emphasis on culture that emanated from the Boasian school of the 1920s. Though deeply wedded to essentialist notions, Vasconcelos used the raza cosmica to dispel eugenicist goals of racial purity that had dominated political and academic discourses across the Americas and Europe. Another ideology is distinct, but it's related, that uh, emerges around the same time is the racial democracy thesis, which is attributed to Gilberto Freire, the Brazilian anthropologist who is, of course, a problematic and uh, controversial enthusiast of race mixing. Freire underscored a Luso-Iberian almost promotion of miscegenation that developed in the Portuguese colonies. And he argued that in comparison to the more virulent forms of white supremacy and hypo-descent, miscegenation creates this racial democracy and a society free from racial tension. Like Vasconcelos, Freire also agree, uh, argues that Brazil's strength lay in its mixing of indigenous African and Portuguese people. Now, of course, um, <clears throat> Freire's ideas have been vigorously contested, often excoriated over the years by feminists, indigenous anthropologists, and contemporary studies of Afro-Brazilian studies. And I'm not either going to defend him or berate him. I think despite his problematic cultural nationalism and his highly suspect gender politics, uh, he's right in looking to Brazil's slave past for patterns of socialization about race that are grounded in these sort of taxonomies. However you want to uh, synchronize race and slavery, the relations among people whose legal status was characterized as free, freed, indentured, enslaved, clearly shaped the landscape in which they operated. So I just want to talk very briefly about one of the annulment petitions um, that, I, uh, that I look at. Um, so in 1670, Inez Escobar, a mulata slave, sought an annulment of her marriage on the grounds of notorious inequality. 
Inez alleged in her pleadings that, quote, I understood that my husband Antonio was mulatto, but it turns out he is morisco, of Berber parents and a slave, and for this reason he is so depraved and of poor habits and condition. Actually, the, the um, chapter's called Of Poor Habits and Condition, because I love that. I always think that that's a perfect way for me to have described my ex-husband. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> so Inez came to court with a slew of witnesses who attested to Antonio's violent behavior, his habitual drunkenness, attributing these unseemly habits to his morisco, which is the Muslim convert to uh, Catholicism heritage. Others corroborated Inez's claim that Antonio portrayed himself as a moreno and at times as a mulato to cover up his Moorish background. Inez was granted an ecclesiastical divorce on the basis of the unequal status that existed between Catholics and conversos. And if you have to think about this, Inez is herself a mulata slave. She's differentiating herself from her depraved Moorish husband by claiming a preferential place on the religious scale that separates uh, Catholics and infidels. Now, I'm really interested in people like Inez and what they mean because so much of our uh, ideas about, uh, our historical ideas about race are derived from elite sources. So I'm always thinking about uh, how non-elites use and essentially portray these, uh, use these categories. So Ines is herself an enslaved mulata. She's depicting her morisco husband with images of debauchery, sloth, and violence that are shared by an ecclesiastical judiciary with a predisposed hostility to Moors. Her portrayal of her Morisco husband worked with an equivalent racial grammar that today would conjure up notions of criminality and delinquency of blacks if she were a uh, prosecutor in today's courts. Now, Inez's, of course, petition is strategically invoking these uh, racialized stereotypes to gain a very difficult result, a divorce in the 17th century. And so a common theme in colonial studies is precisely this kind of essentialized uh, manipulation of elite discourses by subaltern subjects for instrumental ends. But I want to press a little bit further. So how does Inez differentiate herself as an honorable person from her degenerate husband? And how is that difference manifested within her complaint so that her, as a petitioner, she as a petitioner and the prosecutor can mutually speak and articulate a language of inequality? So if we shape our inquiries into the constructed nature of race as a dialogic process, we can see how people actively uh, traffic in and end up reifying these discriminatory uh, categories. It's consensual rather than oppositional, with room for negotiating individual positions within some uh, agreed upon contours. It's not completely consensual, of course. But given the plasticity of race, any racial system must leave room for individual social relocation. Inez's case represents an early phase of geocultural distinction between and among Creoles, i.e. Peruvian-born blacks, African-born black slaves, and Iberian-born blacks. 
The brown skin mulatto category becomes a new world racialized identity mutating from the suspect old world morisco. In effect, it's becoming a proxy for nation and character, coming away from blood. So if you think, so we go back to some of our if we go back to some of our, our categories in the Sistema, this, these kinds of petitions now make sense. And the, these charts uh, portray the naturalist thought of the early modern period, in which all of humankind is thought to emerge from a single common family. Difference becomes a question of rationality, reason, and intellect, which is, you know, sort of a Pagden theme. Barbarians are located within the human species, but are considerably more childlike, unexposed to God's word, you know, scantily clad, uh, overly sexed, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so scholars have argued that these casta charts reflect Iberian approaches to racial mixing and serve as a precursor for uh, racial democracy. It is true that these enumeration schemes provide a lens for uh, identifying the social construction of race. Clerics charged by Trident's, uh, uh, the decrees of Trent to receive and register all Catholic souls struggle to freeze identity at the moment of birth, devising such ambiguous categories as tente al aire. There's a wonderful one, which is called, who's your daddy? It's called, I don't, I don't understand you. I have seen burst, uh, burst uh, partidas that say, no te entiendo, I do not understand you. Obviously, the cleric is, is, is presented with a phenotypical anomaly, and he records it in this way. This is an attempt to forge caste out of phenotype, mat uh, maternal identity, because you can always uh, argue about that. We can't, and whatever evidence about possible paternal identity offered by the newborn's mother and witnesses. Um, none of these enumerations are value-free, objective descriptions of phenotype. They all are heavily laden. Um, Juan Perez Sambo, for instance, is, when you see him in the criminal record, is somebody who is a priori illegitimate product of black and Indian parents. Juan Perez Mulato, if you see him when he's making a will, could be upwardly mobile, you know, looking for his own, um, looking to leave property. He, he's different when he falls into the hands of uh, the criminal law than when he is uh, negotiating and contracting. Uh, you know, this is, this is something that is it's wonderful when you have a life, when, when you work with parish records, because you can really see people at one, uh, in one condition at the moment of their birth, and over the life course, they die, depending on um, their life circumstances. It's very interesting to see their death sentences, well, their death records. All right, how am I doing on time? Am I good? Can I talk about my Indians? I love this. Okay, all right. So, in 1607, the Count of, Mon uh, of Montes Claros has a problem. Uh, 
He cannot find any Indians. He is the viceroy of the colony of Peru. He's the king's representative. He's the king's living body in the colonies in Peru, and he cannot find any Indians. The magnitude of this should not be lost on you. Okay, good. Why does he need Indians? Because he needs tax revenue. Faced with a growing need for colonial revenue to finance Spain's militaristic campaigns in Europe and its mercantile uh, expansion in the East Indies, the Crown had imposed severe fiscal uh, policies on its overseas territories. The demands for added taxation generated a great deal of local resistance from Creole elites and from tax-evading indigenous communities. Now, he's trying also to control the indigenous population. By 1613, the year of the uh, census, the indigenous population has migrated outside of the central and southern highlands. Removed from their land base, these naturales, Indians, had become wage earners or landless laboring peasants on large estates. Presumably very worrisome for the clergy, urban Indians are not under the tutelage of a priest or religious order. So Montesclaros says, okay, well, we have to enumerate everybody in the colony. We have to find Indians because we need taxes. We need tax revenue. So his census seeks to determine whether urban Indians have ties to their communities of origin and hence own tribute owe tribute to their caciques, their traditional uh, leaders. So this is not a phenotypic exercise. It's a way of discerning who is culturally and thus racially Indian and who owes taxes. Um, Juan Contreras, the sole enumerator, personally visited 3,163 households, commercial establishments, workshops, and taverns in seemingly relentless search of Indian residents. The entire enterprise took 140 days and encompassed the entire city of Lima as well as two multi-ethnic parishes of San Lazaro and Santa Ana. Despite knocking on doors of more than 3,000 households, Contreras only found 658 Indians in Peru. So he's frustrated by his small sample, and so he broadens his definition of Indian. At the end of the census, we are introduced to 115 Indians who originally came from Manila, Portugal, Japan, and China. Here, according to Contreras, is a representative Indian. I found an Indian in the house of Francisco de Toro who said he had been brought to Lima when he was very young from China. His name is Francisco Jimenez, and he is married to a brown slave named Juana Angola. He is of the Zagüeca caste, never heard of this thing before. He's 24 years of age, and he's the father of four children, Antonio, Marcelo, uh, Maria, and Juliana. Now, I found marriage records for this couple in other, in, in the book of slave marriages in the archdiocese, and the birth of their children, I've also found their partidas. 
In those records, however, they're just chinos. So plausibly, according to this chart, we, we could have said that these children are black. Chinos is a category of blacks and Indian uh, parents. On the basis of the surname alone of the couples, because Juan Angola becomes, uh, Juan, the children would become Angola uh, Jimenez, you would never know that the father is a Chino. But these men are not Indian at all, in the Andean sense. So Contreras' methods highlight not only the plasticity of race, it also shows, which is interesting for me, the extensive intermarriage and rapid generational assimilation. The padrón, or sorry, the census, vividly describes the accelerated process of creolization through these terminologies. Now, you know, what is Contreras doing? He is, he is rendering the visible intelligible within his, his mind. He assimilates difference into one fungible category, Indian, which is, you know, the fungible category of alterity for the Oriental at the time. He doesn't need to do more than that. They still don't pay taxes, but they're Indians, even though they're Chinos. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I, I love that. I just love it. Anyway, all right, five minutes to the future. Um, so do these cases and uh, enumerative practices act as a mirror in which we can scrutinize our own post-racial 20th century projects? Do they merit close analysis beyond the constant invocation of the historian that it is important to understand the present by looking to the past? My aim or concern has been to outline the continuities between the foundational fictions of racial democracy and contemporary multiculturalism, given that it grows out of this particular context of racial manipulability. More importantly, this retrospective inquiry allows us, allows us to trace the cultural zoning of black, Afro-Latino today, and indigenous, Indio, that has now re-emerged in contemporary discourses of Latin American multiculturalism. In an effort to increase the visibility of the black population and to combat racial drift, Afro-Colombian activists have become, begun to reincorporate a range of skin color identifiers used, as we saw, in the old, uh, in the old regional census taking. Um, and it seems from recent journalistic reports that the term mulatto is making a comeback in the US. Although these are modern variations of erstwhile projects, they are born out of different political contexts. Afro-Latinos need visibility to substantiate their claims for representation and inclusion. Multiracial subjects in the US want something besides the binary that is the legacy of hypodescent. Even though they share the vocabulary with colonial and 19th century projects, they have completely different political goals. Racial enumeration, of course, depends very heavily on who's counting and for what purpose. An interesting question for, for modern Latin Americanists is how Afro-Latino social movements challenge and expand the racial democracy ideal. As we might expect, contemporary scholars of race in Latin America have contested the thesis of racial democracy since its inception. The democratic promise, quote unquote, encompasses everyone, provided that they're en route to racial whitening. 
the democracy accounts for the tense coexistence of racial discrimination and tolerance, racial exclusion and inclusion, mestizaje and whitening. Perhaps not surprisingly, the tensions inherent in the racial democracy closely mirror those in the medieval and early modern discourse of universal humanism. No one can test the incongruities between the region's official racially inclusive discourse and the social realities of discrimination and exclusion. But scholars of race can either deride or celebrate the foundational myth of racial democracy for particular purposes. Latin American indigenists can promote hybridity as in the rise of scientific racism, the rise of eugenics, and Anglophone geopolitical ascendancy. This allows a racial order that simultaneously promotes incorporation, encourages assimilation, and ultimately validates whitening. Hybridity as official discourse allows the descendants of the cosmic race to celebrate the, reg the regal indigenous past, idolize the sensuality and the maternalism of the mulata, while keeping everyone on the road to whitening. So that's the cynical assessment, or the pragmatic assessment. Um, a more generous assessment would also take its endorsement of hybridity seriously. As an official identity, Mestizaje proclaims the desirability of forging a nation or imagining community out of heterogeneity. It is attentive to aesthetic production of borderlands, hybrid culinary and literary traditionals, traditions, poetically proud of indigeneity and blackness, and nostalgically romantic about the Indian past. The plasticity of the discourse of Mestizaje shows that it fit liberal, radical, confrontational, and conservative ideologies, depending on who invokes it. Both Freire and uh, Marti insisted on the value of multiracial societies. Perhaps not coincidentally, they were concerned with citizenship in countries that had abolished slavery very late. Um, if we fast forward to the 1990s, the sort of high point of constitutional reevaluations of multiculturalism, we again see an agitational political discourse that prompts new visions of the racial democracy. End-of-century multiculturalism was launched in the context, as you may know, of the return to democracy, with globalized and diasporic sensibilities and an avid embrace of neoliberalism. Neoliberal multiculturalism demands a new racial democracy. Critics of the multicultural turn reject both neoliberalism and globalization, claiming that the universal multicultural subject was a homogenized MTV world musicalized Benettonized amalgam that was neither too indigenous nor too black. In this view, multiculturalism is seen as the result of a Faustian bargain in which newly elected democratic uh, governments accept neoliberalism that impose dramatic structural reforms while uh, celebrating cultural rights. Of course, the World Bank now has you know, a wonderful insistence on, on cultural rights. These economic agendas disarm the culturally uh, authentic subjects of any possibility of controlling the material conditions or resources that would really enable them to function as independent, autonomous subjects. 
In other words, as aspects of the economy and society open up to global penetration, the domestic and the cultural close off and represent the authentic elements of the nation. So, you know, on that very gloomy note, um, I think I'll end. I want to point out the obvious. Globalization, multiculturalism come into communities in regional and local forms. They come in through Telemundo, Univision, Reggaeton, Western Union heroes. They are smuggled in with migratory bodies and imaginations. What I think is patently wrong in much of the discussion on multiculturalism is that it assumes importation and imitation rather than locating it as a process within regional spaces that are already very unique environments of racial and cultural hybridity. The dominant opposition between indigenous and Afro-Latino ever present since the time of Poma, overlooks the historical relationships that within these groups that would have given rise to the Zambo de Chino and, and, and the Mestizo. These children would have been navigating between their mothers and their fathers' communities, already cultural mediators, newly minted racial subjects. Most importantly, today's opposition projects expunge hy hybridity, even as their earlier predecessors embraced it. You can only be indigenous, or you can only be authentically black, you can't now be hybrid. But as the experience of Antonio Jimenez Angola tell us, there is more than one way to be a multicultural. Thank you. You were listening to the Green College Lecture Series, sponsored by CITR 101.9 FM. You can also download the podcast at www.citr.ca. For details on upcoming lectures and other free public events at Green College, visit www.greencollege.ubc.ca and click on the events calendar. Tune in next week to hear more from the Green College Lecture Series. about food and music eating and grooving munching and moving forking and spooning listening to tunes yeah dinner's on soon and to get ready for ready for peanut butter and jams you're listening to peanut butter and jams with host brenda and jordy on citr 101.9 Exploring local music and local food. Tune in to learn about the best eats and tunes from your neighborhood. And a weekly pairing for your date calendar. Warning, the endorsements and criticism expressed during the show are the opinions of the hosts, unless clearly identified as advertising. Put in your earbuds and fire up your taste buds. It's peanut butter and jams. 
Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Jordy, host of Peanut Butter and Jams, and uh, Brenda has stood me up again, as she often does. Well, that's not true, um, but this is two shows in a row that she has missed. Um, luckily, uh, at the very last minute, Jessica Chow said she could fill in for her, so she will be joining us in the studio momentarily. Uh, but what have we got for you this show? Brenda did manage to do an interview um, with an, a, a group called Matchstick Coffee slash restaurant. I'm not really sure what it's about because she just sent me an email with the name of the file, but nothing mentioning what exactly I should describe it as. So uh, I guess we'll find out later. I do tr- I do trust her, so I uh, assume it's, it's something that you will be interested in hearing about. Um, but for now, why don't we put on a little piece of music, and then we'll go into that. Uh, we'll go into that piece in a little bit later. But this is Catlow, uh, Pinkly Things. Are you listening? 
Sundown Records, CITR, The Georgia Strait, and Beat Group present The Fall Down Get Down. Featuring Detroit's own death, local power pop legends The Pointed Sticks for their last show ever, Portland's Bean Jeans, Seattle's King Dude, and many, many more. Weekender goes from November 1st to the 4th with weekend passes at Neptune, Zulu, Red Cat, Dandelion, and LaDiDaRecords.com. And we're back. Um, so that was Cat Low uh, off of their new album, Pinkly Things. Um, you, uh, hope you liked it. That song was called House Arrest. Um, so I would like to do a little announcement uh, for those of you who happen to be CITR alumni or just big fans of CITR. Um, next month, there are going to be a large number of cool events uh, related to CITR's 75th birthday, uh, which is coming up. Uh, let me see. It's happening. Uh, the CITR's Diamond Radioversary Party uh, for 75 years of being CITR, Saturday, November 17th. Tickets are $10 in advance, or $12 at the door. It's going from 8 p.m. to 1 a.m. at Chapel Arts. And uh, there's going to be some really great bands playing. Um, stuff for, I know there's actually some conceptualization behind it with bands from different, that appeal to different generations of CITR listeners. Um, Lisa Marr from Cub, uh, Carolyn Mark uh, for uh, like more established fans. And then for the for the young'uns, there's people like, uh, like Gang Signs, who I'm going to play right now. This is uh, Gang Signs off of their new 